recording this whole time? You have that to look forward to. Thank you so much. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael Nathan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest. You have to say guest. Do I? There isn't a different word you have. But the... the, the, You can't just say butt fart or anything. This is my butt fart, Ethan Bartlett. I just said you couldn't do that. Wow. All right. We've taken a turn for the worst. I quit. I'm taking my toys and going home. <laughs> no, you can't do that. Why not? Because otherwise, I'm not going to let you drink any more of the sketch. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about how, like, I had already drunk enough of this scotch that I shouldn't be going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, that's also valid and maybe a little more responsible than <laughs> what I chose, but I'm just going to withhold it from you. Well, I'm, I'm bringing my toys back, and I'm not going home. Okay. And later I'm going to give you a toy. Alright. I like toys. I mean, that's a boy. But... Oh, good. I like books. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, this scotch that we're drinking is Isla Storm Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Uh, the Highlands and Islands Scotch Whiskey Company Limited Glasgow G62 6BW. Read From literally the Queen every, of the Hebrides. Liter- read literally every other number on that bottle, please. <laughs> I will not. Okay. I'm just gonna pour us a little bit more so we can drink that, and we will establish the rules. So wait, I'm not gonna pour it yet. I want your wife to tell us the rules. Karen, you're keeping me from scotch. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Okay, now you can ask God. Thank you, Karen. You're a very nice wife. She's gone. I do mean gone forever. Wait, did you kill her? Well, no, she left me. Forever? Presumably. I should be back. Yeah. The last time she left me forever, she came back when my money ran out, so. That's nice of her. Yeah. To you know, do that. Pretty perceptive, too, actually. Yeah. I'm not sure how she even did it. Like, and, and it's also kind of ironic. Like, you'd think that she would leave you when your money ran out. Yeah, that's the joke I was doing? Oh, is that the joke? Well, that and also the, the whole thing where it's like, usually it's like, she left me, but then she came back when her money ran out, but I right. flipped the pronoun. I see. All right. 
So we have to cut this entire first five minutes. I'm not gonna do that. Nothing of value is. You're been asking said me yet. to do too much. I asking us to do too much because then we'd yeah. have to re-record the intro. It's true. I'm not gonna do that. I know. I'm not either. Me. So all right. And you can't make then me. We're just gonna lie in this bed that we've made, and I'm gonna do my nails. This glass. No. And wear bathrobes. Whoa. And have pillow fights. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, you're right. All right. Yeah. So. All right. Well, here's to that then. Yeah. So we are continuing to discuss the book Things Not Seen by Andrew Clements. And I teased a little bit about what I wanted to start this episode with in the last episode, and so I'm just going to start this episode with that unless you have something else to say. Sop Hokels. Nope. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question here, and I want you to answer honestly. You said you had stuff to say, and that was your whole tease? Yep. And now you're asking me to talk. Yeah, exactly. What I had to say was a question. <laughs> That's not a thing to say. That's a thing to it's, ask. Yeah. Asking is saying. When you say something, you're asking. No! When you ask something, Neither of those are true, inherently. <laughs> this is not like a spiders and arachnids and bugs <laughs> thing. So my question is, uh, invisibility or flight? Obviously flight. Why? Because it would be cool. But why not? Cooler than invisibility? Why? Because you could actually do more theft with flight. (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, you turn invisible, you can steal anything. Yeah, if you can just walk into a bank and, like, fill your backpack with $1,000 bills and then just fly away, like, you can get away with that way easier than having to do all the... Sneaky sneak stuff you have to do when you're invisible. Sure, sure. Like you're sneaking in the bank vault when you're invisible. Someone puts a hand on your torso and you're done. <laughs> done. You're naked torso. Yeah, and yeah. You're disgusted. Du- and plus, and you think you're covered like, in tattoos. When you're when you're when you choose flight, right? You can fly at a height that's like high enough that nobody on the ground with standard equipment can get at you. But, like, low enough to be under radar and, like, plane sure. coverage. So you can literally just rob that bank and fly away just completely invisible. Whoa! So you get the best of both worlds. Do you not think I have already thought this through? I see you have. Yeah. So your argument for why flight is better is because flight is also invisibility. And it's cooler and you can do crime <laughs> better. Okay. That... Anything I would challenge you? And I will spend the rest of this podcast defending We're not going to do that. But I would, is the point. <laughs> that anything you can do with invisibility, you can do with flight, and also you can do other stuff with flight. Got it. So yeah, basically what you just said, that in like flight is superior because it's invisibility but better. Got it. Alright. I dig it. Yeah. That was my question. So, obviously flight. Okay. And obviously I have thought this through, and obviously I don't understand how you're trying to trap me with this one. Oh no, I wasn't trying to trap you. Like, you came to my dojo? (laughs) 
where I fight with swords and you challenged me to a sword fight. And you didn't take your shoes off before you entered. Oh, that was my mistake. (laughs) Well, no, that was just a symbol of how much of a clod you were. You tried to trap me with your invisibility versus flight question. Gotcha. Okay, okay. I may be trying to make this go on as long as possible because you said we weren't doing the rest of the episode about it. No, we're done now. Are we? Yep. Well, you do have the reins. Yeah, I do. So now... Uh. um, with that, like, okay, so that that whole question of being invisible and the idea. So, I, like I said, I read this in about 2002 when I was a t- teenage boy. Yeah. And he makes reference, Bobby, the narrator main character, makes reference to the fact that other boys at school would be like, dude, you're invisible. This is the greatest thing ever. And he, from his perspective, is thinking, no, it's not. Right. But, you know, the boy's idea is like, dude, you could go into a locker room. You could go into a gas station and steal stuff. Right. And et cetera. Literally telling him to be the Invisible Man monster from the H.G. Wells novel. Which is also why I would also say flight in response to that. Because you could do more crimes. No, not crimes. Because invisibility kind of implies... Criminal behavior. If you're invisible, for invisibility to be anything, you have to be a monster. Because if you're not, then people will see you invisible-like, as ironic as that is, and see you as a monster. So either you will be seen as a monster, or you will be a monster. Sure, sure, sure. Is the trap of invisibility. But, like, most gas stations have skylights. So you could just grab everything you wanted from the gas station, and then just shoot... Up through the so, skylight. Ethan is a criminal, and that's the takeaway from no, this episode. No! That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is, if I had superpowers, I would be a criminal. <laughs> okay. But I don't, so I'm not. So I'm yeah. a good person. You're a good person. That's right, Ethan. Yeah. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Also, duh. I'm duh. Duh. I'm a good person, and duh, you're proud of me. <sighs> Sob Hockles. Okay. Nope. Uh, did you have a question you wanted to ask me last episode about the end of this book when I told you that I hadn't finished it yet? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> as much as I disappointed you. The end, the, like, last, like, whatever, three three to four pages of this book are basically Leisha writing him a breakup letter. Yep. What did you say? Yep. Okay. I couldn't tell if it was yup or nope, and it was like a weird directly in-between sound, which did actually seem appropriate, and I'm a little bit uh, jealous that you could do that, but Mm -hmm. also I wanted to clarify. Anyway. I just want to make things as ambiguous as possible. Speaking of, like, outdated technological references. Oh, yeah. All of the time they spend on AOL Instant Oh my gosh! Which, of course... Is not like explicitly mentioned to avoid no, like but mentioning. Like, cor- you know what they're doing. Names. Everyone who like us was thirteen at this time in two thousand two. You knows know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of. It's interesting. Um, in the Fault in Our Stars, I noticed a thing that John Green did that was similar. It was basically the same trope, but ten years later. Okay, is. After a character dies, spoiler alert, 
I guess. <laughs> Wait, a character dies in a John Green novel? Yeah, right? What? Yeah, well, especially the one that's um, my mom described as if Love Story and Ferris Bueller's Day Off had a baby. Um, okay. Or A Walk to Remember and Ferris Bueller's Day Off had a baby. Uh, okay. Anyway, no, but John Green did a, did a thing in that where he, one of the characters dies and, yeah, a character in a novel about cancer kids does die. Anyway, and one of the characters just says something about, like, I looked at her wall the next day and, like, saw all the messages of, like, condolence and, and grief. And, like, a phrase like that comes up several times in that novel. But all that's ever said is, I looked at her wall. And, but you know what that is. Like, it's yep. her Facebook wall, but he explicitly avoids mentioning Facebook by name. Right. But you know. You yeah. Know. And it's, this is the exact same thing. Right. Anyway, that digression provided to you by page 248, where probably, excuse me, probably the last time. Yeah. But way super far from the first time. Oh, yes. That someone sends a message by just messenger. But we all knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Did AOL, like, go out of business just from sinking under the psychic weight of all of the <laughs> angst sent over oh, his instant message probably because like i know that's where i had my first two unrequited crushes yeah anyway uh yep, so basically so basically this is a breakup letter yep. from what you questioned whether she was actually his girlfriend or not last episode quote unquote so like you didn't even give him the dignity of having had a girlfriend before she broke up with him. Why am I the bad guy? In well, this? it's because you didn't give him the dignity of having a girlfriend before or she broke up. Or did they with ever explicitly label themselves that way? I think he did. No, he, he did didn't. At one point. Are you sure? I am positive. Can you prove I've that? I've read this three or four times. Can you prove that he did not say girlfriend? Here, at let one me point. quote this entire book and prove that in no place does he say no. Wait, are you saying you can't prove a negative? I can't prove a negative. Can you prove that? Oh my gosh. Sorry. This was a stupid game <laughs> that I bad. That I started, did the middle of, and then I'm finishing it now. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. So she breaks up with him. Um, Quote, unquote. Go on. And then he literally just says, I I uh, fold up the letter and stick it in my pocket. Blah, blah, blah. Some, some like, follow-up stuff about imagery and sight that's probably not important. <laughs> she broke up with him. And then says, I've got to get over to Alicia's house. I need to tell her how much I love dot dot dot, how much I love her poem. She wrote him a poem in the breakup letter, which is just so... I'm 17. <laughs> and I have deep thoughts. And in 10 years, I'm going to look back on this and think that this is the most pretentious crap I ever did. <laughs> and, like, I so wanted to hate Andrew Clements, right for this, except that it's true. Except that it's so right and correct and true <laughs> that like Andrew Clements almost almost he would not be doing his job. Spirit of the early two thousands. So he would well. not have been doing his job if he did not include <laughs> a multi stanza 
unrhymed poem. Yup. With no capitalization. Yup. And at least no capitalization. At in least something one in... single sentence line stanza. Right. In fragment. It was. It was quote. It was a poem in an email. Yeah. Which is called in the text a letter. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything about that was correct. And I like want to hate Andrew Clements, but actually... but you can't. You, if you hate him, you have to hate yourself. Yeah. Th- well, that's what it is. <laughs> I want to hate him, but it's actually just that I hate myself <laughs> in two thousand and three. Right. So anyway, so he's going over to her place to tell her how much he loves her poem that she broke up with him with. Yep. And he needs to be there to see his face when he tells her. What is he doing? She explicitly told him a thing, and he's he's ignoring everything she told him. I don't think he it's is. It's like he's devaluing no. everything that she said. Prove Except, me wrong. Okay. Prove I'll me prove, wrong. I'll prove this me wrong. This is me sitting at the table in the park in the meme <laughs> saying, Bobby is devaluing everything Alicia told him. Change my mind. I will And I have a coffee mind. mug filled with... <laughs> An adult beverage of some kind that is non-specific, and I need you to change my mind right now. Go. Okay. Um, she writes this email. Sort porkles. Nope. <laughs> and in this email, she writes a poem, or she she includes a poem that she wrote in this email. Everything that she said in this email, she she never explicitly breaks up with him. She says in this email basically broken down that she is overwhelmed. That's what she's saying. She is saying here that his problem was solved. Hers was not. And that's uh, in the rest of the text of the book, once these two meet and they start working on the problem of Bobby's invisibility, when she talks about it, when Alicia talks about it, it's always connected with her blindness. You're invisible, I'm blind, we're the same. Is how she talks about it. Yes. And so for him to have his problem solved, but her not to have her problem solved, is frustrating to her. That's what she's breaking up with, is the idea that she can be fixed. She had this hope that she could be fixed while she had this comrade in Bobby and now she's afraid that he's going to leave her just exactly the same way that everybody except Nancy left her which interestingly Nancy the friend that she has from her school was mentioned when we met her early on and then maybe occasionally mentioned throughout the rest of the book but she wasn't she didn't matter at all until we get to the end when we hear that she shared this poem with Nancy she'd been talking on the phone with Nancy yeah it's only at the end of the book once Bobby's problem... It, it starts a little bit before Bobby, Bobby's problem is solved, before he becomes visible again. But it, she re- Nancy really she becomes doesn't. a character again after Bobby becomes visible. She doesn't break up with him. No, she doesn't. I just proved your negative that you claimed. Thank you. By rereading the whole thing and she doesn't break up with him. No, she doesn't. Exactly. She's just talking about the frustrations that she's having with her situation. Because now he's fine. He's set. He's visible again. And she's pointing out that she can't see. She's still blind. She is still in her situation. Uh, And so it's a matter of, once again, perspective. 
that Bobby, through his whole ordeal, has learned to see Alicia. Right. And what's really meaningful to him is where she says in her email, I see you. She, yeah, calling him an invisible mirror. Um, she says, in him, I see me, I see you. Love, Alicia. She, she says she sees him. Right. Which is so important to Bobby because he knows that she means more than physical sight. Right. Because she's blind. Right. So she is obviously talking about actually seeing who he is. She sees him more than anybody else sees him because he, again, talked about how invisible he was to the popular kids even before right. he turned in actually invisible. And now he's visible to a blind girl. Once again, the wise character being the blind one who sees beyond physical sight. Right. Um, and so he values that in her uh, and recognizes also in that context that she also needs to be seen, which is kind of that connection between blindness and invisibility that the blind characters are frequently invisible. Go back to Oedipus Rex. Right. Tiresias, the blind character, right. is invisible to right. Oedipus. He ignores him. Oedipus ignores this wise character who's trying to talk to him because he's blind, so obviously he can't see. Alicia is blind, but Bobby is going to go and tell her that he sees her, and that's why he needs to see her face when he tells her he loves her poem. Interesting. Also, yes. in rereading this just now, here's another thing I caught. Yeah. And that was you, Bobby. Invisible mirror. I see me. I see you. Love, Alicia. Mm -hmm. I believe this is the first time that the love word yes. has been introduced. Don't even believe for a second that I didn't notice that when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Andrew, Andrew Clements almost just underlines it as much as he can and leave us all with our dignity by saying yeah. Yeah. how much I love dot dot dot, how much I love her poem. Right. So like, yeah, there is that. Yep. And, again, okay, so this is very heavily rooted in the context of the early 2000s and mm. all of the technology therein and the way teenagers talked yeah, in that yeah. era. And so you think about AOL Instant Messenger, AIM. Right. Or email, which was our method of communication in those days. Right. That all, all of that. That's how we talked to one another. Right. So that our parents didn't know what we were talking about. Yeah. So, like, and for context, gentle listener. Yep. Michael and I are 29. Yep. If you are currently below the age of 18, you know what, like... Say texting. Snapchat? Uh, say and, texting. No, 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 but, like, what's the coolest thing now? Snapchat? Like, that's the coolest thing I know of, which probably means it's almost not cool anymore. Right. But, like, Snapchat? Like... Email was once as cool as Snapchat. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, email was once not the thing that your boring stepdad did while he worked 70 hours a week right. from his home no, office. For you to get your own email address, it was, was awesome. huge. Yep. It was, like, bigger than you getting your own phone. Yep. No, absolutely. And then AOL Instant Messenger was, like, another thing again because that was like yep. email that you could send and receive right. instantly and frequently aim and email were coincidental yeah 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 uh you would get an email address and an aim username yeah 
if you have an AOL an, email address, didn't it yep, then it would communicate a, as that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah if you had. If I were Michael at AOL.com yeah. as my email, then my AIM username would be Michael. Yeah, so, but, like, you wouldn't be Michael at AOL.com no, if you you would think of something 14. super clever. You would be, like, I don't know, Michael, dig it, bleed it out, dig it deeper, just to throw it away, 3939 <laughs> yep. at AOL.com. Exactly. And then your away message would also be the lyrics to that song. Oh my gosh, away messages. <laughs> anyway. So, so this is so gentle listener, this has been our excursus into pretending to be still buffering. Yep. Yep, that's it. Yeah, just go listen to Still Buffering and you'll figure out what we're talking about. I think they have a Oh yeah, no, they definitely have talked yeah. about all of this. Yeah. Um on Still Buffering. Anyway, uh so yeah, so that was really cool. And when you think about the that context of these teenagers at that time, in that era, yeah, you are very specific about the words you chose if you were talking to someone you had a crush oh, on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, to end an email, love, yeah, that's not an accident. Right. No, yeah. you, you, if you say love at the end, you're married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you will be. Exactly. Um, but basically, you are. Especially mm-hmm. as far as all those other catty wenches were right, concerned. Right, yeah. exactly. So, um, get off and, my back, y'all. Yeah, to to the point that, like, ending an email L-U-V yep. was different from the master move Alicia pulled of ending it L-O-V-E. Yes. Because L-U-V, like, was sort of deniable. That was That could just be, like, a close friend thing. But if you spelled that entire word out with all its letters, yep. like, that was it. You were gonna be married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Especially because, like, Alicia proposed by doing that. Right. And Bobby accepted by not immediately ceasing all contact with her. Right. Instead, and in and fact, he went above and going, beyond yeah. by going over there. Yeah. He, he, he transcended his generation yeah. by actually going to her house. Um, I want to point out on that last page where she's talking about needing a reflection. Um, where she, at the bottom of page 250, I was almost gone, Bobby. I almost, I was almost all the way disappeared. I couldn't remember if I was real. I couldn't see who could love me. I couldn't see anything there to love. I couldn't find a reflection anywhere. I needed a mirror so bad, and that was you, Bobby. Invisible mirror. I see me. I see you. Love, Alicia. That's how her email ends. And in that whole context, she's talking about needing to be seen and needing to be seen by herself. Which she can't do being blind. Right. Which is, that's where her problem and Bobby's problem intersect. Because Bobby also could not see himself. Both of these two, their problems are similar, but they are the same in the context of not being able to see themselves. Right. Bobby then, when he goes over, what you skipped over in that second to last paragraph says, uh, uh, as I open the front door, something moves. Oh, you mean like a bunch of stuff that like summarizes all of the themes of this novel? Is that what I skipped over? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The important stuff you skipped over. So, good job there. Yeah. Way to go. Well, Uh, I guess I deserve that. He says, as I open the front door, something moves. I turn, startled. It's me, in the big hall mirror. But I don't stop to look. I'm out the door. I'm in a hurry. I've got to get over to Alicia's house. I need to tell her how much I love, dot, 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 how much I love her poem. And I need to be there to see her face when I tell her. 
he's looking past his own reflection. He's not worried about being seen anymore. He's worried about seeing. Yeah, he's almost not even worried about seeing himself. Right. He's worried about seeing Alicia. He needs to be her mirror again. He recognizes what she needs. That's his growth. That's where Bobby actually becomes a really mature character by the end of this, is he recognizes the perspective of someone else and foregoes his own perspective. Again, what's what's stunning about this is as he's on the way out, he's shocked to see his own reflection again. Yeah. He is still a little rattled about coming back to reality. Right. But he's focused on someone else's perspective. Right. He'll deal with his own perspective later. Right. He's working on someone else right now who needs him. Right. That's what's really powerful about this. Also, what I'll say here is where um, uh, Alicia can't, feel real she says she's she herself feels disappeared she feels invisible she feels like she's not real go to the beginning of the book how does bobby describe his invisibility how he discovers he's invisible it's the not the one two three four five six fifth and sixth paragraphs yeah fifth and sixth paragraphs i'm not there i'm not there yeah it's not that he's not visible he says i'm not there yeah that's the fear of the invisible person that they don't exist right which i think is why going back to hg wells the invisible man becomes a monster right because he's invisible but that invisibility is resulting in his non-existence right to be seen is to be real bobby isn't real he's acknowledging that He isn't real anymore. He has lost his foothold in reality and in actual life. And Alicia now is feeling the same way at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. He knows how that feels from Mm -hmm. the beginning because he's been given a new perspective. And so his growth is in learning about her perspective through his own struggles. Right. So that's that's what's really excellent about this. And I'll say this too. In this now, my third, maybe fourth read... I sympathized a little more with the parents Mm -hmm. than I did with Bobby. Sure. um, In their worry about Bobby and and their worry about how he was going to handle all of this, how he was going to survive, which is just showing my own age. Yeah, I was going to say that's the the tragic uh, fall of the older you get reading, um, you know, YA... YA books that were meaningful to you as a as a child. Right. And where you identified with the child characters right. and, you know, when they thought the adults were butts, you thought the adults were being butts. Right. Because that was just, like, completely parallel with exactly. your own life experience. Yeah, the first yeah. time I read this, the parents were jerks. Yeah. And they were idiots. And I did not like them. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, no, I get their perspective. But yeah. at the same time, I'm also like, Bobby, you're an idiot. You're a jerk. Whereas right. when I read this the first time, I was like, no, Bobby's right about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, I, I do think the parents are um, flawed characters who sure. make mistakes and mess things up. Because, you know, in the hands of a skilled novelist, no one is flawless. But yeah, absolutely. Right. I also very much was like, no, but I do understand exactly why, even like why they're making the mistakes that they yep. are making. It did make me feel old and I didn't even identify with this book as a right. child. I may or may not have been thinking 
along these lines, as we were, were discussing this even even before just now when it came up explicitly, about the fact that I've also been uh, re-watching Gilmore Girls recently, <laughs> which is a great show. Fight me. Um, not you, but the gentle <laughs> listener can just fight me. Now but you're being mean to the gentle listener. Well, you know, it was about time. That's true. Um, it had to come around to this at some point. So, you, you know, Gilmore Girls, as you may or may not know, is uh, the, the two main characters are a mother and a daughter, mm-hmm. right? And when the season season one of the show begins, the mother is 32 years old and the daughter is 16. What are you doing? Trojan! I'm so mad at you! <laughs> She's worse than an animal because she can just hop the freaking fence. Yeah, she can get past the, the baby gate. She has prehensile she... thumbs and stuff. Right. Um. All right. Two word answer: hand dog or face cat. What? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I forgot you weren't caught up on the bam. Anyway, it's not worth and it's not worth sacrificing any more of our podcast to that nope. much more famous podcast. Right. Um. Uh, yeah. Anyway. You're talking about Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. So, the, uh, the mother and the daughter, the mother is 32, the daughter is 16. Um, which, if you do the math, means that the mother had the daughter at the age of 16, right? Um, and it's a whole thing, because, like, the mother ran away from home while pregnant, and, like, sort of carved out this life for herself, blah, blah, blah. That's not actually important, though. I've just seen several parallels i could draw to um things not seen but the point i was making is that so you know season one of the show begins you have like the adult character for all of the sort of um adult parents watching this with their children on the wb and then like the teenage girl character for the wb's actual like intended audience to Mm -hmm. identify with right um and it's lorelei and rory rory's the daughter um, and definitely at the time that I first started watching this, um, which happened because I saw Talk Everlasting, had a crush on Alexis Bledel, <laughs> figured out that she was the daughter in this show and the rest is history. Um, and also my mom started watching the show. Anyway, uh, so like Rory was Sorry playing about this Sophocles play. Rory was playing 16-year-old when I was about 17, I want to say. So, like, and also, she was very intelligent, very well-spoken, made references to old movies, and her main hobby was reading great literature. So, in case anyone has ever wondered who my first, like, deep, deep crush was on, yeah, it was it was Rory Gilmore. And so I was watching this, re-watching this uh, more recently, and I suddenly realized Lorelai is 32 in this show, and very attractive, and, like, she's only three years older than me now, like, the character <laughs> is. Yep. And I was like, You're oh, closer to her age than... I, like, so much closer. Yep. Um, and I was just like, I don't know. It it's given me an ongoing existential crisis that I can't fully describe because mm-hmm. it's ongoing. But that was way too long to take to. No, but it's it's a similar a parallel, parallel of like 
growing into a different demographic and it shows a little bit of mastery on the part of the author that mm. you can identify with one age group and then another age group right. as you grow older with a later read. Yeah, exactly. I think I've seen like some Facebook memes or whatever where, and I'm paraphrasing cause I didn't think to find any of them, but um, it's along the lines of like, you know, me reading uh, YA novels when I'm a kid. We're going to go, you know, steal a car um, and drive down to, like, Heist Fort Knox while blasting indie rock from Japan. Mm-hmm. And me at 14 reading this, yeah, get him. Me at 28 reading this, no, you're babies. <laughs> you can't do this. <laughs> Exactly. And that's very much that same thing too. Like yep. I I think I would rewatch Three Ninjas and be like, You guys are gonna die for Don't sure. Don't do that. Or even no. home alone, you're just like, He's you're gonna die. Can you even can you even operate a microwave? You can't feed yourself. Don't worry about traps, you're gonna die of starvation. Mm-hmm. Accurate. Um I wanna ask about this book what you thought of the writing style in general. I pointed this out when I brought this book that it was all written in present tense, for yeah. example. React. I mean, none of it bothered me. Sure. And there were... There's present tense. There were a lot of, like, very short, non-dialogue, very short paragraphs. Yep. To the point of... A lot of, of sentence fragments, too. Sen- yeah. There were a lot of... There's... Present tense, very short paragraph to the point of, like, single-line paragraphs, um, including, like, several in a row on the first page. Yep. Um, sentence fragments and, like, just relatively short sentences in general, which is, like, four or five things that usually bother me in a novel if the novelist doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and I really never took note of any of them, which... Hey made me pretty suspicious that the novelist knew exactly what he Mm -hmm. was doing with all of them. Right. No, I think Andrew Clements is very smart in his style. And exactly what we were talking about, also about the setting of this in the early 2000s. Yeah. This sort of sentence structure and paragraph structure is exactly what you and I encountered and did in emails. And... AIM yeah. and stuff when we yeah. were interacting with people through our technology of the time. And I think that's maybe the like umbrella mm-hmm. reason that none of it bothers me is that it really just feels very much like this child sat down to write out this account or even that he sat down like with a reporter and like a tape recorder um Mm-hmm. And, like, this is just being transcribed, right. more or less. Like, this just seems like a very natural way for a person, his age, his demographic, and yep. in his time period to tell this story. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and the, the present tense uh, part of it, I notice it on the first page, and then I forget it. Yeah, yeah. I forget that yeah. it's first uh, that it's present tense anymore, and it just, it's it's a story from then right. on. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, no, I think Andrew Clements's writing style, and honestly, I haven't read anything else by Andrew Clements. His most famous book is Frindle. Uh-huh. 
um, which I'm kind of interested to read, but I never read it. I never read it because I had friends who read it and loved it and told me that it was the greatest book ever and that I couldn't have valid opinions about books until I read that book. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you couldn't. Absolutely. So I, I couldn't read it. Absolutely could not read that book after yep, that exactly. Um, but uh, do you know the. And have, also have you known heard as. Frindle? I had not. I was going to say, though, the phenomenon you just described, also known as the reason I never read Harry Potter mm. until the summer the seventh book came out. Sure. Yep. Yep. Very good. Yeah. But no, I had not heard of Frindle so until I saw the concept the of Frindle is fascinating. Title mentioned on the it's, cover of this book. It's a class of kids who create a language to communicate with one another. Frindle is their word for pen. Okay. And that's why it's called Frindle. Um, that's all I know about it. I know they've created other words for different things and stuff, but like they communicate in secret through this language that they've made up. So you're saying different things to them mean different things? Exactly. Okay. So, which it's fascinating. As a nominalist, I love that. You right. Know, they've created this language, and also they've created, by creating a language, they've created a society. Right. And they've created an identity uh, through that language. And so right. I want to read that at some point. It's, it's super interesting to me. Yeah. And I want to know more about Andrew Clement's Based on this book, based on that concept, and therefore that book. It's just a little I don't bit... know if he's still writing. Sure. It's but... just a little bit fascinating to me that you just have so hardcore, like, gone for this book. Mm -hmm. To the point of having read it at least, like, four times. Right. And never read anything else by the, that author. I know. It's like, if I weird like... to me, but... I don't know about you, but if I like an author... My at least instinct is to just, like, if I read one book that I just adore, mm -hmm. my at least my instinct, um, even if I don't follow it up with action always, is to just go get and read everything else by them. Sure. And depending on the author, sometimes I don't actually care or think that that's as good an idea, but, like, that's at least my first impulse. Sure. Like, I don't think... I... Oh. I was about to say I don't think I, I have any examples of an author where I read one book by them that I just adored. Like, not that I liked, but just solidly adored enough, especially enough to reread and haven't read a second book by them, but Mark Halperin. I have oh. read Winter's Tale and nothing else by him. Sure. I have several of his other books, but... I haven't sure. read anything else by him. You'll get to him. I no, I will. Like mm -hmm. he's very close to the top of my list, but he writes these massive books, and right, that's a problem. <laughs> and honestly, the only reason I haven't read anything else by Andrew Clements is exactly the pressure to read Frindle, right? Which is unfortunate, and I need to read Frindle at some point. Also, that's a bad but, reason I want to go on record as saying no, it absolutely not to is. read books. It, it my dad is. My dad didn't read anything by C.S. Lewis Oh, until he was, like, in his late 30s, I want to say, mm. because everyone in college told him he had to read C.S. Lewis. Got it. So if that doesn't prove that that's a bad reason, I don't know what anecdotal evidence will. No, I know it's a bad reason. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying it to you, I'm saying but... it to the gentle listener. Oh, sure. Okay. Just, just like, in a learn-from-our-mistakes yes. sort of way. Yep. 
do as we say, not as we do. Yeah. Um, I have another question for you, and this may round out the podcast here. We'll see how long it takes to, to talk about it before we get to reviews and things. Yes. But Wait, do we want to do Jonathan Franzen or no? We should do Jonathan Franzen. We could do it a different time, like on a different thing. Go ahead and search for it while I ask you this question, okay. and then we'll talk about this. And it might not take very long. I was holding my hands and up then... like this to show that this doesn't count as part of the podcast. Oh, got it. Well, it's staying in. I'm not. I'm sure it, it is. Yes. Um. So my question for you is, why is this book called Things Not Seen? I don't like that you asked me that question. <laughs> Because I wanted to ask you that question. Okay. Um, because I want to say that it has some sort of biblical resonance to it. Yes. Is it? Is it Paul's like set of paradoxes where he yeah. says God has like chosen the things that are not seen to shame the things mm-hmm. that are? No, because I feel like I'm mangling that reference. Yeah, you're, you're mangling that a little bit. All right, so you answer the question, it's, Mr. Biblical Languages it's, it's, and pulled from div and stuff it's oh my gosh oh my gosh now do you know what i'm talking about yeah what's hebrews 11 1 ethan i'm not gonna remember it now but it's the one about faith is the evidence the mm, the evidence of is it the evidence Uh uh-huh faith is the evidence of things looked for things not and something about things not seen hope of things not seen okay yep that's it. Uh, so faith is hope and things not seen. So faith, hope, things not seen is the connection really here in all of this. Yeah. Which is interesting because there is that title, which I don't think ever comes up within the text. No, it like, absolutely doesn't. Which is, and, I think, magnificent. So there's that title, and there's the fact that at least in the version that we both have that I think is the same version, in the the font of the cover, and it is sort of that obnoxious early 2000s, some of the letters are capitalized and some are lowercase and there's no consistency, but the T's are always in the shape of a cross pretty explicitly. They're like lowercase T's, and I was like, Pretty sure I was reading it too much into it until just now when you talked about this. Yeah. So, yeah, what do you think the significance of that is? Well, I, I think it's it's not necessarily as explicitly religious as it could be. Um, well, see, here's... I, I'm I'm going to let you finish. Okay. But... Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Kanye. Yes, you're welcome. Um... My my thing about that is that sometimes, and this can this is like a rule that can get sort of abused quite easily. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when a text doesn't have any religious, like specifically religious mm-hmm. overtones to it, that's a conscious choice yep. on the part of the the creator that almost more points to a greater religious mm-hmm. significance than if. You know, the creator had sort of said, like, we need to follow the rule of St. Benedict or something right. like that. Like, the the more specific things like that that you drop into a text, actually the more complicated the religious reading of it is. Yep. And so, you know, it's, it's the idea that the world of the story doesn't have to be religious in order to have religious significance because mm-hmm. it's different from the actual world. Exactly. 
Yeah, and, and that's that's precisely what I pulled from this as well. Um, the Well, it, it gets the, the conclusion, how Bobby gets visible again. Yeah. It's a leap of faith. Yeah. He, um, in, in, but, but it's also not because it is kind of based in science. Right. But without fully going through the entire well, it's, scientific method. It's based in science, but the two right. characters who are on, like, the, the most scientific end of the spectrum. Right. Don't want to do it because it. It hasn't gone through the full spectrum exactly. and battery of tests, yeah. and so so it's, even it's though it's taking a risk yeah. without knowing the result, yeah, or in other words, acting on faith, exactly, and it that that is spurred if you go through the the conversation once again. It was Alicia who mm. came up with the idea for how Bobby could become visible again, right? And what spurs that the conversation in AIM even though it's not called AIM, is Bobby says, I'm back where I was, only worse, because there's no hope. Right. And Alicia says, no hope? How do you figure? And goes on, they keep talking, and um, eventually Alicia is thinking about it that, no, but, like, this is how you became invisible, probably, so what if you did this to become visible again? Right. And it's a result of their conversation where Bobby is saying there's no hope. Right. Which is part of that whole quotation. And that's sure. as explicit as it gets right. in the book is where Bobby says there's no hope. Right. When he's talking about hope. Right. Is where it, it's hope in things not seen. Right. And that's really the most religious it gets. There, There's talk earlier in the book about fear and him being afraid and having sure. to get over that fear sure, sure. and always recognize even when he gets over the fear he recognizes there's always that fear it's always right. there even when i'm over it right it's still there right um which is is part of that religious aspect to it as well that you know it's something not seen right that i know is there right right and just the idea that things that aren't seen are real mm-hmm. which gets back to the very beginning of the book once again, when he realizes he's invisible, his reaction is, I'm not there. Right. I don't exist. Right. And Alicia's at reaction at the end is, I don't exist. Right. But to realize that things that aren't seen do exist. Right. That's where the, the religious aspect comes into it. Sure, sure, sure. Recognizing their own existence, their own reality. And Bobby, in his own story arc, in coming through this struggle, bearing that cross of non-existence right is able to help alicia bear her cross of non-existence right and like ultimately for both of them in different ways the the sort of coming into existence which is that coming of age idea um it does involve faith like you they could they could talk themselves into a corner and just still with even at the end of the book with the information that they have they could say I don't exist. I'm invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, but in part, they have to have faith in each other and yep. in, you know, the future to say you, that that's not true or to at least operate yep. as if that's not true. Yep. Exactly. Very good. That's my thoughts on that. Yeah. No, so. I like that. Do you want to do Jonathan Franzen? Yeah, let's do Jonathan Franzen. All right. Let's do a little bit of that. Uh, 
So yeah, because I think that's as good a wrap-up of Things Not Seen as we'll yep. get. Uh, so I sent Michael this um, shout-out to Sean Patrick Little, whose books you should look up on Amazon. He has several good ones on there. He was the former department head at the last uh, college that I taught at, my, my former department head. Um, he sent me this the other day, and it's Jonathan Franzen's Ten Rules for Novelists. And now, speaking of people who peaked in about 2002, um, <laughs> Jonathan Franzen, about the turn of the millennium, was considered one of a handful of the, like, literary giants mm-hmm. of the day, which is a pretty sad commentary on its day. At the time, he was about 50-50 considered a pretentious hack versus, like, a literary giant and... Mm-hmm. Thus, the opinion is probably still fairly divided, but it has swayed greatly towards one end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. So this um, is Jonathan Franzen's Ten Rules for Novelists. It's apparently an excerpt from a book of essays that he recently wrote. Um, and so it starts okay, but it takes a solid nosedive. Yeah. So I'd like us to just... Let's, Just let's run through them react a bit. in real time okay. to them, I would say. Yeah, sounds good um, to me. We don't have to spend a great deal of time no. on any given one, depending, but let's just, like I say, sort of, this is like our live tweet of reading this, All except right. it's on our podcast cassette tape. The, nope. Um, yep. Soap yep. horkles. Nope. <laughs> sorf, sorf norkles. Nope. Anyway. Rule number one. The reader is a friend, not an adversary, not a spectator. <laughs> like, these, I want to say? It's fine, but also yeah. I'm going to reserve the right to disagree when I'm actually writing. Yeah. Like, it's it's reductive. Yeah, exactly. But as reductive rules go, it's not the worst. Right. So. Number two. Fiction that isn't an author's personal adventure into the frightening or the unknown isn't worth writing for anything but money. I mean, I want to say that the first several clauses of that sentence are so broad as to be meaningless. Yeah. And it, it, it equips you to just say, anything you're not writing for money is my adventure into either the frightening or the unknown. Right. And it's... again it's reductive yeah because maybe i just have a story to tell and maybe it's great and maybe it's fantastic and i think there are books like that i don't think that anyone who has told a great story in any format has ever followed this rule yeah maybe great stories have followed this rule, but they're not great because they've followed it. Right. They're great for other reasons. Yeah. So. Number three. Never use the word then as a conjunction. We have and for this purpose. Substituting then is the lazy or tone-deaf writer's non-solution to the problem of too many ands on the page. And sometimes I can agree with that, but also it's reductive and just... I, have... I think it could be solved just by saying write euphonically yeah i have two problems with this one is that it sounds like i would a facebook status i would make like seven years ago sure when i was much more pretentious than i am now 
note that's not saying i'm not pretentious now but i was much more pretentious seven years ago and this looks like something that would come up in my facebook on this day history that i would cringe at and think about deleting number two you were asked to write your top 10 individual pieces of advice and you spent 10% of it on this peat entry. Yeah, this is dumb. <laughs> better, that's a better summary than mine. Number four, write in third person unless a really distinctive first person voice offers itself irresistibly. Like, that just depends on style. Yeah. And really... Any author's style is going to be different. And again, you could just, anytime you don't want to, anytime you want to use third person, you could just say this first person voice offered itself irresistible. Like it's, yeah. it's basically like saying, write the way that you should write unless you should write a different way. Yep. It's, it's like a non-sentence. Yep. Um, number five. When information becomes free and universally accessible, voluminous research for a novel is devalued along with it. That doesn't even make sense. Move on. Agree. I This is the only one out of this list that I would characterize as a straight-up lie. Yeah. A straight-up falsehood. Because when, like, it's, a, it's an attempt at, like, doing a, a Marshall McLuhan-esque aphorism, but Marshall McLuhan... A, is a way better thinker than this, and B, would almost say the opposite. When information becomes free and universally accessible, the volume of it is so overwhelming that anyone who does research well is probably going to be better respected. Maybe not for that specifically, but just as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, voluminous research for a novel is devalued by who? Don't use passive voice, Jonathan, and this is why. <laughs> you didn't include that anywhere on this top ten list. Nope. Um, number six. The most purely autobiographical fiction requires pure invention. Nobody ever wrote a more autobiographical story than The Metamorphosis. Here's my reaction. Stop trying to be smart. Right? And also, you wrote two sentences under this one heading, and they're two completely different things. Yep. Like, you... Even if the first sentence is true, the second sentence is about a story that is pure autobiography, except also, for the him turning into a giant bug. Like, it's it doesn't yep. relate to the first sentence. Yep, no, not at all. Number seven. You see more sitting still than chasing after. Stop trying to be smart. Also, what did you just say? <laughs> yep. Number eight. It's doubtful that anyone with an internet connection at his workplace is writing good fiction. I doubt your evidence. Yeah. Also, I want to take back my thing on number five because this is also a straight up lie. Yep. There are plenty of people I know had an internet connection at their workplace who have written good fiction. Yep. Uh, Number nine. Interesting verbs are seldom very interesting. That's also a lie. Like... There's something to be said for the simplicity of verbiage, but also there's nothing wrong with an interesting word. You're not smart because you defined a word within the same sentence two different ways. Yeah. And you didn't spur me to deeper thought by doing that. You just created a nonsense sentence. Yeah. Number 10. You have to love... Before you can be relentless. 
What? That one doesn't make any sense at all. Nope. That doesn't what? make any sense. Not I at all. just said the same sentence twice because that's all the reaction I have to that. It doesn't make any sense. Alright. So, yeah, that's that pile of nonsense. Yep. Um, Which apparently, according... I searched for it on Google, and the first article was was this, and then the second article was a roundup of other writers who have responded to this by tweeting their own nonsense writing advice, oh, which I had not seen before, and I do want to look up now, but apparently yes. we are not the only ones who think this is garbage nonsense. Good. I'm glad. Yes. Um, so with that, let's go to our ratings section. Yeah. Ratings. So, Ethan, what did you think of Things Not Seen? Give it a rating. Buy, borrow, forget about it. Okay. I'm going... My rating is Revenge. Okay. For your breaking of our rating system <laughs> on Station Eleven. Um, I'm going to say you could just borrow this. Not because it's not worth reading multiple times, but because in a standard library checkout period of four weeks... You could read this multiple times. <laughs> it is absolutely worth reading. It is absolutely worth reading multiple times. But, like, it's so short that only someone as busy as Michael could <laughs> not read it in, like, an afternoon. Right. So. Very good. Borrow it, but, like, a bunch. Right. Um, I'm also going to say borrow. Ah. Um, so, uh -huh. surprise, surprise. Tricky, tricky. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean if you want to buy it, you shouldn't, because if you borrow it and decide you want to own a copy, you should buy a copy. Yeah. But borrow it first. And most of the reason I say that is because it's dated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is very dated in yeah. the technology references. So this isn't a book that you should hand off to your 13 year old. They're not going to like it. Mm -hmm. Like maybe some of it they will, but... I think it'll depend on the reader at any yeah. age. Yeah. Whether you can sort of read this as... You could read it as like an unintentional period piece. Right. Um, and, and if that's you're ultimately good what it's becoming is a yeah. period piece. And if you're good enough at like reading that way and filtering for like what's important versus like the AOL references that really aren't that important one way right. or the other, even though... We spent fully 75 minutes of this podcast on them. <laughs> um, you know, if you if you can filter out for that, like, it'll be a great book that's maybe even worth buying. Yeah. So, all right. So that's our rating on... You're welcome. I did your rating nice for Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yep. You covered all of my bases. Um, I prefer to cover all of your bases. Yeah. So, with the rating of the book, now let's rate the Scotch, the Isla Storm. What do you think, Ethan? I have to give this a solid four stars, mm. um, which is pretty pretty good, I would say. Pretty up there mm -hmm. with some of the better, better Scotches, my more favorite Scotches that we've had. For, like, a somewhat generic-looking, uh, you know, bottle of Scotch that you admitted... I see this. Yeah. Uh, you admitted that you got at Trader Joe's. Like, nope. it's quite interesting and good and complex. Mm -hmm. um, 
I will say you cheated a little by making it an Isla, which is, <laughs> you know, the the subsection of scotch that, like, has, tends to have that strong smoky aspect that I really like in scotch. But I will say it didn't, that's not the only thing that was going on in it by any means. There was definitely, excuse me, there was definitely a strong smokiness, especially on the front mm-hmm. end. But there was almost like a, like a popcorn butter Hmm. element to it um which sounds kind of gross but it like it was it was subtle enough that it worked there's also like a spice element Mm -hmm. like either a like coriander or a nutmeg Mm. um as well as like kind of a grassy element on the back Mm -hmm. back end um grassy or like herbal almost um so like a lot of stuff going on here um that that was really interesting and good um my only real complaint is that on the back end, it didn't keep sort of standing up for itself. It got a little watery. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's a problem I've had with much more sort of name brand scotch, quote unquote. You know? Yeah. Um, like I would, I would much prefer to have this bottle over like any Glenlivet I've ever tasted, for example. Sure. So um, yeah. So yeah, solid four stars. All right. I, I'm also giving it four stars. Um, I hadn't tried this before. I've had a few other scotches from Trader Joe's, um, and my reaction to them has been, yeah, they're fine. Yeah. But this one surprised me quite yeah. delightfully. Um, yes. Again, with that complexity, it's got that smokiness in the front because it's an Isla, um, but the grassiness that you note at the end is is very interesting as well. I thought it was kind of salty too, like that yes, seawater yes. was all over the place, and it was very strong, um, which was interesting um, as yeah. well as some of that spiciness. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, it was a very interesting, interesting scotch, yeah. uh, and I'd be happy to drink it again and drink oh, more. Oh yeah, of it. no, I, so yeah, I'm genuinely considering picking this up when I go to my local trader joe's next. right exactly no it's 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 awesome so yeah, yeah. Four i will say um, oh yeah what do the tasting notes say well i'll yeah, get to that yeah. in just one second the other thing i wanted to say is i noticed that this is an 80 proof like 40 percent oh, sure. by volume um which of course is like standard for a lot of like whiskeys and rums and gins and things but um i think scotch is usually much higher than that yeah and if it if it's down to 80 proof that means it's been diluted like it's been yep. not watered down in like a negative sense but literally added water to create the the product which might be some of that that standing up for itself that i was yeah. mm-hmm. looking for and missing but okay so tasting notes nose pungent peak peat smoke mm-hmm. um phenolic with a little coastal breeze i don't know what any of that i don't know what that means i don't know what the word phenolic means the other stuff i do know the words but anyway the nose is not my can i yep smell yours yeah very phenolic so phenolic i have no idea what that means the coastal breeze thing i can see though so it says palette lovely sweet peatiness that's that's a good point like there was a sweetness to the peat. Yeah. It says some iodine and sea salt balance. So that's, yep. you were picking up on that. It says with vanilla notes and some okay. spice. Yeah, spice. So like that mm-hmm. vanilla and spice combination, I think yep. is some of what I was picking up on. It says finish waves of smoke, fantastic length. Mm-hmm. Um, which I would oh, disagree with, the, yeah. especially the, the length. length. I don't, I don't agree. And like, it's interesting that almost makes me wonder if it was supposed to be sort of 
waves of smoke, but like it was watered down just enough that it just sort that of became grassy. A bit of that. Sure. Yeah, it became like grassy and and herbal, yeah. which is that not unpleasant. And it, again, it's not like uncommon for right what we're drinking. But I would have liked to to have a little more backbone. But sure, that's really my only like actual complaint. I'm right, quite happy with this. Oh yeah, I'm I'm very very pleased with this this Scotch selection. So with that, um, Scotch book pairing. Start with uh, Station Eleven. What do you think of the pairing to Station Eleven? Um, it was a little incongruous, but mm. I think almost any scotch that we would have liked would have been. Yeah. Because, like, that's that sort of, uh, you know, Station Eleven had that longing, that overarching longing and yeah. um, idea of sort of lack of resources mm-hmm. that, like, this is, you know, being this is able... too sophisticated civilization, real world. Yeah. Like, or... Yeah. So, maybe. I mean, and in that sense, maybe it was, like, nicely incongruous. Sure. Definitely incongruous, you know, but, like, again, sort of we were doing an incongruous activity in, in mm. that sense. Yeah. Um, Things not seen, yep. I definitely think this is a scotch that um, Alicia and Bobby would sneak out onto the roof <laughs> of one of their parents' <laughs> uh, you know, houses or whatever, and um enjoy while making out a little yeah um i think i i don't know i think i think for all the all the sort of different notes going on things appearing and disappearing i think mm. it probably worked very good what do you think yeah i i agree with kind of kind of both of your your analyses um i don't think it really matched either book uh-huh. terribly well i think it matched things not seen better yeah um, Station Eleven, I don't know. The only thing I could say that it worked with Station Eleven for was the sea saltiness. Sure, sure. Because there's some ocean imagery in Station sure. Eleven, but that's thin. And for things not seen, uh, I don't know. Things not seen almost demands just something more kid-like, and maybe it's just because it's a YA novel. But I was gonna say we should have been drinking like Boone's Farm chocolate milk. <laughs> um but chocolate milk spiked with vodka exactly so i mean it, it, it was fine for, for which would also have seen, probably but worked not for stupendous for either station 11 for that yeah matter. yeah that's true chocolate milk spiked with vodka should have been our drink this time right you just all you do is you get a gallon of chocolate milk okay you pour out or drink a fifth of it and then you just pour in a fifth of vodka hmm. all right interesting that's actually another thing i got from a john green novel so there you go so all right well that's a rating so speaking of other books what is our next book ethan uh is it our next book yeah i guess it would be wouldn't it yep. uh, rotation yep. uh, so this is for you Ooh. this is the plains by gerald murdane did i yep. yeah um have you heard of this author i have not he i learned about him in a new york times article that sort of said he hmm. could be the next um, uh, Nobel Prize winner in literature. And I hmm. think this article came out before the most recent Nobel Prize in literature where Kazuo Ishiguro definitely won and not Gerald Murnane. Mm-hmm. But um, he's an interesting author. He's sort of a writer's writer, even within oh. the currently somewhat solipsistic world of literature. Hmm. Um, he, 
uh, he lives apparently, and and this is this is from this Times article. He lives in the Australian outback in like a little tiny town where his main job is bartending. Um, but people who know about him consider him like one of the the best writers alive hmm. um he himself already like he's won a bunch of sort of very prestigious literary awards and he himself already like knows and writes with the consciousness that he will be studied by generations of grad students to come hmm. um and there's the majority of his work i guess that's extant um is unpublished and has wow under orders to not be published until after he dies. Wow. And much of it is introduced with a note that says Dear FC, which is his um, acronym for Future Creature, which is him literally writing notes to some grad student who will study him in the future. That's insane. Okay. Yeah. I'm fascinated so, to, to read this. Yeah. And so, in other words, I read this New York Times article and I did order three to four of his books. Right. Um, and this seemed like the most sort of doable one for our podcast for sure. various reasons. All right. Um, yeah. So, again, very few people know about him, but everyone who does thinks the sun shines right out of his butt. All right. Um, so you heard it here, gentle listener. Gerald Murnane, the sun shines out of his butt. Yes. And we'll be reading The Plains. And this is him. also, again, like, he's very reclusive. He doesn't... He does what he writes what he writes and that's about it. He doesn't okay. grant a lot of interviews and he doesn't want a lot of fame, it seems. He's sort of embarrassed okay. by it while also seeking it. So sort of like if J.D. Salinger were still alive and right. were at least periodically writing something that he published. Hmm. Um, right. But also Australian. Right. So that's what I know about Gerald Bernane. Again, yeah, sounded fascinating. Obviously had to had to read him for this podcast yeah. um apparently he's not super easy to find in the united states like okay. he hasn't not everything he's published hasn't come out here mm. there are a lot of editions on amazon that like seem okay. sort of sketchy or amateurish mm. um this book the plains i was able to find yeah multiple copies of pretty easily like right this, this looks to, fairly professional yeah this, stuff, so this one seems to have had a print run by some fairly decent publisher in the states so this one i think should be easy to find yeah. on amazon and possibly your local used bookstore maybe right, your new maybe. bookstore especially if it's like more of sort of an academic collegiate sure. leaning bookstore but i think this one should be obtainable for the gentle listener right and it's relatively short lengthwise right. i don't know how looks like it dense it is so but, All right. Well, yeah. looking forward to that. You want to know what we're reading after that? Yeah. Hiding in plain sight. I did see that bag last night when I slept in this room where it was, and I was like, that's our new book, isn't it? Yep. Oh, interesting. Um, I was told that this might be cheating, but also I think it's going to be difficult. This is a book called Soulless yeah. by Gail Carriger. Yeah. Um. It is a novel of vampires, werewolves, and parasols. So I'm going to have to be careful when we talk about this book. It's a nice yeah, you are. bright pink binding on this cover. The reason I picked this book was because for our podcast, also, look at the inside cover. I did, and like, 
Yours is signed too, right? Yep, they are signed by the wow, author. That's cool. Um, they were found in Barnes Noble this way. Wow. Uh, not labeled signed, which Barnes Noble wow. tends to do. So I don't know what happened there. I do know that a lot of but, writers like to sneak into bookstores yep. that have their books and secretly sign their books. Right, and I'm wondering if and that's I, what happened here. I know, I know of this author. I've okay. heard of her, and I, you know, I don't know if she's the type to do that, but right. I have to hope that she is, basically. Right. But, so, like, my thought was, for this podcast, I wanted to read something that I'd never read before. I wanted to expand my horizons, and so I was like, I'm just going to wander Barnes Noble until I find a cover that looks interesting, and of uh, the back of the book that looks interesting, and I came across this, this bright pink cover, and I was like, I want to know more about that. Sure. <laughs> so I pulled it off the shelf yeah. and said, we're going to read this. Okay. So that's what we're doing. I know almost nothing about it, except that it's, like vampire punk <laughs> yeah it's it's a uh, i know i know actually from what you just said probably more about it than okay you do. um i've encountered it before i've never read it i've it's one i've thought about reading and never sort of gotten around to okay um it's can see it's sort of considered part of one of the more recent waves of steampunk um, bathroom. i'm dying wow i know i'm bad he lost Anyway, Solus is considered part of the more recent wave of steampunk, and now I'm going to wait till he comes back. Alright. <laughs> so I'm going to finish saying the thing about Gale character, and then we're going to punish you quick. Okay. Um, so... What I know is Gale, Solus and the the series that mm -hmm. um, came after it is considered steampunk, sort of one of the big hits of the more recent wave of steampunk okay. that got sort of popular. And I don't know if it's sort of like, oh, this is when steampunk sold out. I think I get that impression from some people, but I don't know if they're like okay. trustworthy. Um, I do know it's very popular, at least within that sort of niche community. I do know that like... In case you couldn't tell from everything about the illustrations of this book, it is not necessarily aimed at us two male people. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, and I have been, I have, I have read things and been told like looks are deceptive that way. That like as a as a man, you have every chance of of you know being super entertained and and liking this book and so forth. But as far as marketing goes, we are not the target demographic. Right. Which I don't necessarily mind. I'm just Which is saying. ironic because I definitely bought this book mostly based on the cover. <laughs> yeah. I think it tries to sort of straddle a line there. But, sure. Um, yeah, I think the publisher has very definite ideas about n people like us not being their target audience. Right. Which, again, is super fine. Like, it, that rings as much uh, uh, as a challenge to me as anything else. Mhm. Mm so, that said, uh I lost. You did just lo lose right at the last right at second. The end. Right. At you the just end. you just you were crossing the finish line and your horse broke its leg like 5 feet away. Yeah. Um so here's what we're going to do since we're already massively over time without you doing this to us. Yeah, I know. Uh 
Uh, pick a Hamlet soliloquy. Oh my goodness. One that you can remember. Uh, okay. If it's to be or not to be, that's fine, but no, I want to give you the choice. So uh, that this suits you solid flesh. Okay. Yeah. You have 15 seconds. Oh boy. I need you to get as far through the soliloquy okay. as you can. We're not acting. We're not like just, taking pauses. Just reciting. Just, okay. just firing it off. All right. Are you ready? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to hit this timer. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Oh, that the two, this tutu solid flesh would melt thought, resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed himself against self, fixed his can against self slaughter. Uh, oh, shoot. Um, uh, time! Wow. Okay, I got two lines in. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was less than I could probably that do was in bad. 15 seconds. The pressure was on. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't do it. I mean, that was the point, was, yep. you know, to straight up torture you, so here yeah. we are. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yep. Yeah. No, I'm well, embarrassed. I, I, I feel like I sufficiently, like, legitimately punished you yeah, wow. in not that much time. So I'm pretty pleased with that, actually. No, that was, that was, that this was good. almost makes up for you making me sing on two different occasions. <laughs> I made you sing on one occasion. A separate guest made you, you sing on another me, occasion. helped make me sing <laughs> on two different occasions. You stood by. I did. I watched, watched it happen. happen. Wow. <laughs> All right. Do you want to uh, close this thing out? Yep. So that's our episode now on uh, things not seen. <laughs> we're we're done with that. Um, and so you know what we're reading next time, gentle listener. We're gonna start with the Plains by Gerald Murnane, uh, and then uh, after that, a uh, month after that, we'll read Soulless by Gail Carriger. Uh, so read along. Give us your feedback in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line there. Also on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. You can at me, at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. You can at me, whatever that means, at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, you can also go on Facebook and ask to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. It is a uh, private group or a closed group, uh, but if you request to join, we will let you in unless you're invisible. Um, yep. Or a robot. Or a robot. Um, we will also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, and we don't condone plagiarism, but if you go onto our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, and fill out the homework submission form, we will do our best, and we'll make it fun. Don't turn it into your teachers. Just... Ask us to do it, and yeah. it can be old homework too. Yeah, if you're if you're well out of school, but you remember fondly some sort of project, or we're or hatefully, spitefully, or hatefully, yeah, anything you think that would be interesting, funny, or hurtful for us to do, right? Torture yeah. us. Yeah. We're asking for it. Yeah, we we uh, we're masochists. Quite. Yeah. Um, so if you like this masochistic podcast. Um, check out our other shows on the Tapster Radio Network, like Intermission, the backstage audio drama podcast, and Here's Johnny, the horror review podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United RPG actual play podcast. Um, rate and review us and those other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever podcasts are sold for free. Um, and that helps us out a lot as well as just tell a friend to listen to our podcast. Yeah. Um, it'd be really cool. Like I've had this thought where listeners could like start a book club or something where they know what we're reading next time and they or read even, that over a month. And even then... for back episodes. Yeah, yeah. Do that. That'd be fun. Yeah. No, that's super, yeah. that's a super know. good idea. Yeah. So do that. And if you do that, let us know. Take a picture. 
yeah and send it to us uh, and we'll put it on our twitters and send us Facebook any thoughts i'd stuff. love to like if we get enough thoughts from people i'd oh, love yeah. to just do like a special episode of like sort of follow-up like yeah. talk back stuff like if you do your book club does east of eden and you listen to our show and right. you have thoughts like shoot them at us and you know if, if we get enough stuff like that doesn't have to be clubs could be individuals but yeah if we get enough stuff like that built up we'll just do like a special episode where we sort Absolutely. of respond and dialogue and all that i'll feature your thoughts and your ideas right. and questions and opinions and all that good stuff right no i love that yeah so uh look up my web comic pin porter girl detective it is a uh film noir slash old creepy fairy tale oh ah, homage <laughs> i think homage. pastiche homage playground um it's about a, a 12 year old girl who dresses in a trench coat and um protects her town from evil fairies and if that any of that sounds like your jam um check us out search pin porter girl detective on google go to pinporterdetective.com and do that it's good so Thank until you. next time just remember it's our, it's our party, party and, and we'll cry if you want to
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.